0: It dawned on me as everybody's clapping, it could have also very well been like, oh good, he's almost done. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, we know we've got to finish it up. Yeah, let's clap him out of here. But we've made it. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. The theme of Jonah is God's message for all mankind. And his message for us in this final chapter may be the, the hardest pill for us to swallow. <laughs> Uh, for me, I know it was, it was definitely the hardest one for me to swallow, especially in these days. As we, the previous messages we've seen, his message of salvation, uh, we understand the responsibility to share the gospel. We want to go forth and do that. That's our duty, that's our command. And we want to go do that. That's his message. That's our responsibility. Right? And, we, and we praise him as we looked last week. We praise him for his faithfulness in delivering us when we come to him with a heart of true repentance, that he honors that, no matter if it's a, an unbeliever or a believer unto salvation. Regardless of sin that has existed before in, in your life, if you come to him with a heart of true repentance, he honors that. And we praise him for that. <laughs> Absolutely, we praise him for that. And we're so grateful for that. But to have to extend or have a heart that extends compassion and kindness towards others, especially when we think they haven't earned it or deserve it because of their actions. is a little bit harder maybe for us to swallow. And so tonight we will see the contrast between the sinfulness of man's heart and God's loving heart of compassion towards sinful man. So we'll begin in verse 10 of chapter 3, just to kind of get a running start. It says, Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that He had said He would bring upon them, being the Ninevites, and He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So He prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's immediate response of God, their repentance, the repentance of the Ninevite, it says right away, "Is it displeased Jonah. The proper response should have been, Jonah rejoiced exceedingly, (laughs) because an entire pagan city had just come to believe in Jehovah, in God, and have hearts of true repentance. Jonah was the conduit through which the Spirit moved and the Lord worked through to have probably the greatest revival in history, and his response is absolute displeasure. Imagine if that happened in our city, or in your workplace, or in your school. I pray your response would be rejoicing (laughs) that everyone is getting saved and giving their life. They're they're understanding their sin. They realize it. It's before them. They're having these hearts of true repentance. And I pray that we're not just like, oh man, this is exactly. We're responding like Jonah. Don't be that kind of guy or gal. But Jonah is displeased. Not just displeased, but exceedingly displeased. Most of the time when we are displeased with something, it means that we wanted a situation to turn out differently and, or we wanted a different solution or expected different results, right? If we're displeased, it means it didn't go our way or didn't turn out the way that we thought it would. And I, I work in hosp- the hospitality industry and I can't tell you how many times I've been on the receiving end of displeasure <laughs> on a regular basis for what would be considered the stupidest of little things. I remember there was one there was one time I worked in a restaurant and I, I literally had to stand. They told me a customer was complaining about something. I went out there to deal with it. And I literally had to stand in front of this man's table so he couldn't get out of his seat because he wanted to go yell at an employee because they forgot pickles on their sandwich. And, he, and the, the, the girl's like 16 years old. He's like, I'm going to go tell her. And I was like, Well, oh, actually, no. <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. I know you're displeased right now, it's just pickles. But a lot of times when I mean, you see those kind of people in the world and you see this, this sense of entitlement in the world around us, this, this idea that I, I deserve to be treated this way because I'm fill-in-the-blank. I deserve to be treated this way. That entitlement comes from the, the source of their identity being in something other than Christ, completely other than Christ. And so it's easy for them to get displeased over little things because their identity is not in Christ. It's in something else entirely. In Joshua twenty-four fifteen, we read in our scripture reading, it says, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you, were, if you got to participate in the Passover dinner this past week, a, they sang a beautiful song at the end about, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's just it's such a, a beautiful statement. And I, I, growing up, we had a plaque that said that out the, outside of our door, right on the front, right, right by the door of our house um, growing up. But when it says, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, that word evil is the same word that is used here to talk about Jonah's displeasure. Jonah's displeasure was evil, but Joshua is also saying, if you're not pleased with serving the Lord, it turned out differently than you thought it would, then, then go serve other gods and see how it's going to work out for you. You have the right to do that. And we, we read in our scripture, praise God, the, you know, the people came and we said, no, we will serve the Lord. Well, for many people, I think following Christ is much different than they think it is. It's either one of two things. It's either they think it's supposed to be kind of this frou-frou experience, kind of one emotional high to the next or they think it's what maybe is more often portrayed in the media of this, the extremists that are seen that don't represent Christ, right? Or they a lot of times affiliate Christianity with rituals that are in the Catholic church and so they have this completely warped view of what Christianity really is. And I think even sometimes in our life we have this displeasure towards the Lord and like, this is not exactly how I turned out exactly how I thought it was. Following you, Lord, is not exactly what I thought it was going to be. I didn't expect like smooth sailing, but I definitely didn't expect like my life is just one big storm all the time. And here's what I've noticed through observation and personal experience. One, one, there are abundant... uh, absolutely abundant eternal blessings that we have that come from serving the Lord, that are bestowed upon us by his grace as we've been studying in in, in the book of Ephesians in the morning. And we are completely undeserving for them. It is all because of God's grace. And we absolutely should enjoy those and, and live in that and have our identity in those things that those are ours to claim. But when people serve the Lord simply for themselves with a what's in it for me mentality, they will still be displeased with serving him you will still be displeased with serving the Lord if you're only in it for what's in it for you. And that includes, I think, serving him just because of the blessings he gives us because the blessings he gives us are just that. They're blessings. They're not deserved. The point of serving him, why I come to him is because he is worthy of it, worthy to receive the glory, worthy of my life being lived out, spent, surrendered to his will because I want more of a relationship with him. I don't don't serve him because of what he gives to me. I serve him because who he is to me, right? He is my savior. He is my friend. He paid the punishment for me. All the blessings are all on him. I don't deserve those. And so what is evident by Jonah's displeasure here and subsequent anger, it reveals his heart that maybe he had repented of his actions in trying to evade and running away from the Lord and running away from trying to serve the Lord in a certain way. He had endured the consequences for that through the, through the fish, right? And, and having to endure that trial. But as, he's, as we read this, and it says he was displeased, we realize that he had not repented of his heart toward the people of Nineveh. He had repented of his actions, and certain actions, but he had not repented of his heart. That was still there. It was still there. I'll go, I'll go to Nineveh, and I'll do what you want me to, Lord, but I'm not going to like it, <laughs> essentially. He was obedient, but is not fully. His heart, he had not repented of it. And I believe that's why it was much easier, maybe even much more willing, to preach a message of judgment when you have a heart of anger. (laughs) The message kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit easier. We talked about last week when uh, God says in uh, verse two of chapter three, He says, "Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach it to it the message that I will tell you." He doesn't tell Jonah the message until he gets there, right? And so. when the Lord says that, he's probably like, okay. And then he gets there and receives the message, realizes what it is. And he's probably like, this is perfect. (laughs) I could do this. I'm already angry. I can bring judgment. I can preach judgment all day. (laughs) But Jonah's displeasure, however, was not, was unique in that it was not because of something that didn't turn out the way that he thought it would, but rather that it happened exactly like he thought it would. That was why he was displeased. It says in verse 2, he prayed to the Lord. This is a much different type of prayer than we have in chapter 2. And he says, Ah, Lord, it was not this what I have said when I was still in my country. Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. Now, we don't have him actually saying this, excuse me, recorded in Scripture. I'm assuming. That it was somewhere between verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, you know, when the Lord originally tells him, Arise, you know, go to that great city of Nineveh, cry out against it, for the wickedness has come up before me. In the next verses, he arose and he he flees to Tarshish. Somewhere in between there, I'm guessing, is probably when it happened. But he's saying, you know, when you told me to do that, Lord, when you told me to arise, to go, to cry out against this city of Nineveh, you know, to call them to repentance— I, I told you I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I told you I didn't want to go to them. I mean, do you do you not even realize who the Assyrians are? Like essentially, and we we have to remember that in context. Like these were barbaric, brutal, evil people. In in Jonah's mind, essentially, Assyrians were just created to keep hell hot. Like that <laughs> that was their purpose in life and their only purpose in life. And he says, "I I said I didn't want to do that. That's why I fled to Tarshish." I because I know you are a gracious and merciful God. Often, often we run away from God, from doing what he's asked us to do, because we become overwhelmed sometimes with our inadequacies, our our ineffectiveness and our our inabilities, or we're just worried that we're going to be ineffective, and so we never take that step of faith. And so we just kind of freeze. We're, We're just kind of overwhelmed. And so instead, we'd just rather disobey. It's easier. Well, the fear that motivated Jonah to run away was that he would be effective in sharing God's message. It's completely opposite. Completely opposite from us in many ways, or I'd like to think so. And so it leads me to ask the question this evening, are you declining to ask God something because you know that he will do it? Are you declining to ask him, Oh Lord, give me, give me more people to share the gospel with? Or give me a broken heart for my enemies, Lord. Show me, show me ways that I can die to myself even more so I can serve others. Teach me how to love the unlovable. Teach me how to love what the world considers the least of these, right? The people that are unreached, that are not worthy of even me talking or having a conversation to them. Are you declining to ask God to do something because you know he will do it? Because any of the, one of those things, if, or in plenty of other things you can ask the Lord, I would almost guarantee you he will answer those prayers. <laughs> and sometimes that keeps us from being obedient. It keeps us from asking those things. Jonah goes on by describing who God is. On top of this, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. All these attributes are descriptions of the Lord that are just taken from Scripture, who he knew God to be. He knew this is exactly who God was. Exodus 34, 6 mentions almost all of them right off the bat. This is Moses going up to Mount Sinai with a second pair of tablets, right? The Lord descends in a cloud, And the Lord says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. So it's essentially, it's the same list. And there's other passages of Scripture that describe the Lord in the same way. You know exactly who God was. He was gracious. That grace. (laughs) I love the, I think... It was a description that Will used in describing it in Ephesians. Is God's infinite favor lavished on the infinitely undeserving. That's who God is. He's gracious. He's merciful. In Ephesians as well, it's in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, being rich in mercy, it's just part of whose character is. His loving kindness, his concern, his desire to, to give us something other than what we deserve. That's the God we serve. He's merciful. We are completely rescued because of the, the steps that he's taken to show us that mercy. And he mentions that God is slow to anger. Maybe this isn't you. This is not something you struggle with, but I know it's definitely something I struggle with. Apparently something that Jonah struggled with as well. But slow to anger. Abundant in loving kindness. There's, there's plenty of it. There's plenty of it to go around. There's always going to be enough, and just when you think you've exhausted it, there's still more. There's still more of God's loving kindness towards us. And then one who relents from doing harm. He is a God who is not pleased by bringing judgment. He has to do it in his holiness, in his justice, and his righteousness. But it doesn't please him to do it. That's why he relented when he saw the heart of true repentance from the Ninevites. That's just who he is. So Jonah essentially is just quoting scripture to the God who wrote scripture about the God who wrote scripture. He knows exactly who God is. And he says, therefore, therefore, in light of that being who you are, Lord, I know that is exactly who you are because I know that you are this type of God, kill me. <laughs> just end it. I don't want to serve a God that that's nice <laughs> or, that, or that gracious or that merciful. I mean, like drama queen much? Come on, Jonah. What if God answered his prayer? Like, okay. That would have shocked him a little bit. (laughs) Woke up like, oh, I didn't mean it. He was just crying out to God for rescue from the belly of a fish where he literally actually could have died. And now he's been rescued from that. He's been used by the Lord in this miraculous way. He's seen the most gruesome of people come to repentance. And he says, I'd rather die than see you relent from the judgment that these people deserve. That's heavy. That's heavy. At the same time, we can credit Jonah with being the first person to try to make the Lord's work a non-profit organization. Wait, let it sink in. No? Okay. I'll try. (laughs) Just take me out, Lord. And Lord... In response to that, the Lord asks him a question. He says, is it right for you to be angry? And this is the first of, of three questions that God asks Jonah in this last chapter here. When he asks a question, he deserves an answer. He already knows it. The questions are there to reveal our hearts. Is this the right response, Jonah, to everything that just happened? Is this the right response to be angry? Is it right for you to, do, to respond in this way? I believe that question the Lord would ask us tonight as well. Is it right for you to be angry? I mean, when you see all the, the evil that exists in our country and our culture today, is it right for you to be angry? On one hand, I would say absolutely. Paul quotes in Ephesians 4:26, Psalm 4:4 4, 4, when when David writes, "Be angry and do not sin." Five aborted babies found with seemingly no justice. No desire from the government to create an investigation into what happened. Possibly murdered after birth. The nationwide push for the sexual grooming of our children at a young age. I mean, if if these things don't make us angry, I'd be worried. If our attitude toward this is just kind of complacent, like, that's the world, then we need to check our hearts. But that in no way justifies us in reacting to the world with a heart of anger. Just because it makes us angry. Because you don't you don't think God is angry about these things? Don't believe that sign that Will talks about on i4 all the time? Says God is not angry. No, God is angry. God is angry about these things. These things break his heart. But guess what? He does not need you or me to be his harbingers of vengeance across the world. He doesn't. He is perfectly capable of doing it himself in his own perfect timing, in his own perfect will and perfect way. James 1, 19 through 20. James writes, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Why? For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is, this is one of those verses you put on your computer whenever you, whenever you log into Facebook. Oh. <laughs> You can be angry. You should be angry. It should make us angry. But to react or intervene or engage in a situation in that anger does not bring about God's righteousness. Because who are we to say that that is how God wanted to intervene in that situation? If we just respond emotionally in anger, we're essentially taking what we think is the Lord's will into our own hands. And there is a lot of danger in that. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, if it's right to be angry, yes, okay, but am I angry because of the sin or am I angry because God isn't doing anything about it? Truthfully, if we've been honest with ourselves and myself, I've been both. I've been angry at the sin, but I've definitely been angry because I see the sin and I'm angry that God hasn't done anything about it. the question many times comes up god why why would you let them get away with that where's the justice lord it's so easy for us to just pick up our keyboards or our phone and because justice warriors for jesus just think i can take care of this with a few harsh words it's truth they need to hear it. it is responding in anger One of the biggest tests of faith I've seen in my own life and in a Christian's walk today over the past few years is simply the unmet expectations we have of how we think God should handle the situation. We want justice now. We want vengeance now. But if we allow our limited, finite perspective to cloud our judgment and influence our desire, and it's right desires, it is good. God is a God of justice Vengeance is his, he will repay. There's nothing wrong with wanting those things, but if we have this temporal, earthly perspective as our only focus, it's going to lead us into sin and in how we respond. Second Peter 3, verses 9 and then 15, Peter writes, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, perish but that all should come to Repentance. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And Peter's talking about the destruction of this earth, the day of the Lord, when the elements will be melted with fervent heat. And we ask, why? Why won't, why won't you let them get away with that, Lord? the day is coming when people won't. So our focus has to be Eternal. It has to be a, a surrender to the Lord's will. So I don't know what you're doing, God, but I trust you. I trust why you're doing it. I trust that you are not intervening because you're still trying to reach people. These people are still dead in their trespasses and sins and you're trying to reach them just like you reached me. Because th- that's how the world wants us to respond. The, wants us, the world wants us to get fired up. We're supposed to get angry. We're supposed to get passionate about the things the world is passionate about to get a rise out of us. But instead, the Lord is telling us we let that anger break our hearts. We let that anger encourage us to cry out to God knowing that vengeance is his. And we cry out to him and ask him to give us his heart of compassion for the lost people that don't know any better. Second Peter chapter 3 as well verse 11 he says therefore since all these things will be dissolved what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness your conduct that is set apart for the lord and godliness it's as if the lord is saying like i know it's bad down there <laughs> i know it's bad i know it's evil and it's wicked but there're still people i'm trying to save So are you going to get angry or are you going to get to work? We notice, though, that Jonah doesn't necessarily even respond to the Lord when he asks this question. Because I think he he knows the answer in his heart. Is it right for you to be angry about what just happened? Unequivocally, I'd say no. It was absolutely not right for Jonah to be angry about what just happened. About a revival in an evil city? No, absolutely not. But that doesn't stop him from hoping that God's judgment is simply postponed, not just not entirely removed. verse 5, So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade so he might see what would become of the city. So, when it talks about here, right off the bat, Jonah going out of the city, there's some disagreement as to the chronology of kind of what is happening here. Uh, some people would say that chapter 4 reads in chronological order, um, that this verse 1 is a direct response to verse 10, and therefore it just kind of continues from there. Those who maybe teach or approach Jonah as simply just that kind of the symbolical book tend to take this approach. However, what that means that means that verse 1 happened. The judgment was a 40-day period, right? And so verse 1 happened within that 40 days, and then now at verse 5 happens after the 40 days. One commentator I read said, It is neither probable that Jonah should wait in the city for the threatened destruction, nor that after the completion of the time within which the Spirit had instructed him to announce it, he should then go out of the city and wait for it. And here's, here's what I mean, and here's what that means. And this is the interpretation that I believe to be true. Uh, is that verse 1 starts us off after the 40 days are already complete. The only reason that Jonah would be displeased and exceedingly angry is if he had witnessed that the 40 days had come to pass and there was still no judgment. Why else would he expect or why would he be upset that there wasn't judgment if there was the possibility that there could still be judgment within these 40 days? So it would have had to have already come to pass. And so there's no, there's no indication that God told Jonah directly in verse 10 of chapter 3 that he was going to relent to d- from the disaster, right? So the only way Jonah would know that he had relented was that nothing happens at the end of the 40 days. Does that make sense? So I believe this is all happening after the 40-day period. And so that's why I say Jonah going out of the city would have been because he was still hopeful that judgment was going to come even after the 40 days, that the judgment had just been postponed, that the Lord hadn't removed the judgment entirely. And so he makes himself a shelter. He's camping out. That word shelter is just uh, like a, a, a temporary shelter, a booth. It's the same word used for the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, the booths there, uh, when the people dwelled for seven days, commemorating the Israelites' liberation from Egypt and God's faithfulness through the wilderness. Same word there. It's this temporary shelter. Definitely definitely not completely waterproof or sunproof, but it still gave him some, some shade. I mean, you have to remember also, in context, Jonah's skin is bleached. <laughs> this man, like albino, okay, and there is no copper tone, 45, nothing. Like the sin, the sun is like sizzling, this guy, okay? <laughs> so at least it would provide some shade. And he says that he sat under it until he might see what would become of the city. I'm, I'm not going anywhere until I see what happens. There's, n- there's no way these people are serious about repenting. I b- I'll just sit here, I'll wait, and I hope that God still wipes them out. Maybe, maybe God forgot what day it was. Maybe he thinks today's the 40th day, not the 40th, 41st day. Who knows what's going to happen? He'll bring judgment tomorrow. If someone repents, whether it's a brother, sister, or an unbeliever repenting unto salvation— God forbid our thought is ever, that wasn't sincere, let's just sit back and see what happens. God forbid that is ever our thought. God forbid we ever think, oh, well, they've, they've done this before. It's just gonna be like less time. It's not gonna be any different. Let's just see what happens. I say, God forbid, but at the same time, I'm guilty of thinking these things. When you deal with people, you walk with people, you disciple people, they repent and they repent and they repent and you think, Good Lord, (laughs) when are you going to get it? There are no quick fix discipleship programs. Well, maybe there are. Someone's trying to make money off of it somewhere, I'm sure. But if someone is repenting, we just keep coming alongside them and coming alongside them and pointing them to Jesus and encouraging them and praying for them and pointing them to the scripture. Paul writes in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we will shall, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. That's a promise. You shall reap. You can't change their heart, but as you do these things, you come alongside a brother and sister and do these things, then the Lord is the one that's doing the work in their hearts. The Lord is the one digging around them, right? Like the parable of the fig tree in Luke 13. He's the one pruning them, fertilizing them, and by his spirit in time, they will bear fruit. Let's be those type of people. Let's not think. Here we go again. <laughs> but even though that's Jonah's heart here. This oh, there's no way. There's no way that all these people can be serious about repenting even though that's Jonah's heart. God still graciously reveals who he is to Jonah in the midst of it. Verse 6, and the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. The word prepared just means to weigh out or appoint, same word that we've seen. We'll see it in three times here, same word, and it talks about the great fish in verse 17 of chapter 1. He prepares this plant. This is the only only chapter in the Old Testament that uses this word plant. A lot of people just think it means like a gourd or some sort of plant that has broad enough leaves to, to be able to cover Jonah. It says it. It provided shade for his head, you know, his little cue ball, bald head. It's got to have some shade on it, so the leaves or whatever this plant is must, must have been big enough to help aid that. And God appointed this plant to deliver Jonah from his misery, delivering Jonah once again. And so Jonah was very grateful for the plant. It's the first time Jonah's happy <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> oh, thanks, Lord. He relishes when the compassionate heart of God is bestowed upon him, but he is unwilling to extend that same heart towards other people. Let's not be those people either. Amen? Let's be followers of Christ who dwell every minute in the compassionate love and mercy of our gracious God. And we want to represent him well, and so we extend his heart towards others. We extend that mercy, that love, and that compassion. He's delivered us from so much, just as he's delivered Jonah. But this happiness is short-lived. In Verse 7, As morning dawned, the next day God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened, when the sun arose, that God prepared of a humid east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. So the morning comes, the city is still there, not a happy camper, the plant is dying. God prepares this worm to go, to damage the plant, to remove that comfort from Jonah's life. And on top of that, as the sun rises, God prepares a vehement east wind. Uh, the word there also, only time used in the Old Testament. Uh, it's kind of hard to define, but the, most likely the idea is simply just like a, a hot east wind, a kind of a wind that that intensifies the heat that's already present, kind of like like bellows on a fire. Like the heat is already present, but you add the bellows to it and it makes it even hotter, and it really just stirs up the heat and makes it even worse. So that's a, that's the a type of wind that is coming. It's not just like violent, like, like hurricane-type wind necessarily. It, it is a, a wind that is coming to just simply intensify the heat that is already there. Not that it wouldn't be obnoxious if it's sandy and blowing sand everywhere, but his little shelter definitely wasn't going to protect him from this by any means. And so now Jonah is exposed both to the sun and to the wind. And so we see here that God has brought affliction on that in which Jonah had put all of his comfort in. Be careful not to put too much trust in your comforts or the Lord might use them to bring you affliction as well. He is the God who gives and he's the God who takes away. And we have seen the Lord, whether through directly intervening or simply in his sovereignty, allowing it to happen. But we've seen the Lord bring affliction in some ways on many of our comforts over the last couple years, haven't we? (laughs) Toilet paper? (laughs) Who'd have thought? The Lord got us right where he was, (laughs) you know? Right where it's gonna hurt. He knew. (laughs) Not the AC or anything. Toilet paper. That was the one. This will bring him to repentance. The danger of putting too much trust in our comforts is that we begin to think that we attain them on our own. That somehow we have a right to them and therefore we have a right to complain when the Lord takes them away. And if I can be frank, I believe, I've been thinking about this a lot in my own life, I believe the Lord is allowing these things to happen in our culture and in the world and using it to test me, to test us, to see how much of our comforts we're willing to sacrifice in the name of following Him. He's wanting to see if we can just talk the talk or if we can walk the walk as well. It's easy to preach things from the Word. To say these things, you know, to not be like the rich young ruler, right? Who just, the one thing he couldn't let go of, all of his comforts, his possessions, whatever the comforts may be in your own life. And I don't know the future by any means. But I do know one thing for sure, and that is that the church, Jesus' church was not built on the Constitution of the United States. And it thrived for thousands of years without the freedoms and the comforts that we have so wonderfully enjoyed in this country. But as the pillars of those freedoms begin to be attacked, as the world begins to address them and and knock those pillars down and, and take them away, as a church... And even personally in our own hearts and lives, we're going to have to decide where we draw the line. Where do we sacrifice the comfort in the name of following Jesus? Because it's going to be a sacrifice. It's going to take a sacrifice of our comfort to do so when the world gets to that place, and it's already kind of heading in that direction, it's already getting pushed. I don't know what that means for each of our lives individually, sacrificing the comfort. That's between you and the Lord. But I'm just saying there has to be a line somewhere. (laughs) There has to be a line somewhere. Maybe it's canceling Disney Plus for you. Maybe it's something else. I don't know what it is. There's got to be a line somewhere. In the church, we're going to have to adapt and, and learn through the yielding and leading and power of the Holy Spirit and how to be effective for the gospel going forward in a world that is Essentially post Christian now, at this time in our country. The Lord did it before. He can do it again. We've been created for this moment, for this time, to learn and figure out how to do that. But if we're going to do that, we can't have the attitude of, it's better for me to die than to live. Because essentially what Jonah is saying here is, I don't want to deal with this. I mean, he's in the misery, right? He's, he's becoming faint. He wishes death for himself. Essentially, he just wants the easy way out. I don't want to deal with this anymore, Lord. I quit. That can't be our attitude. In this day and age, that can't be our attitude. There's a job to do. There's work to do. We're here for a reason. And so God asked Jonah another question. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even unto death. (laughs) Good Lord. This is really about the plant, Jonah. What's going on? Jonah says, it is is perfectly right for me to be angry. I am perfectly justified in my anger. I have every right to be angry. Stop taking care of me and delivering me. That's what I'm angry about. Because when we see that goodness of God in our own life, the Spirit uses that to convict us of how we're treating others, right? The Lord kept providing, kept delivering for Jonah. Jonah's just like, I'm just angry, Lord. If you would stop doing this, I'd feel a lot better about my heart towards other people. And the verbiage here is strong in the Hebrew. It is right for me to be angry, even unto death. Essentially, he's saying, you're right, I can be angry. (laughs) That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying here. But in this response to God's question, we have the last words of Jonah recorded. It's absolutely right for me to be angry about these things. Thankfully, God is the one who has the last word. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. How can you be upset about something you've had no personal investment in? You didn't make this grow. You didn't do anything about it. It, was, it just came and gone. It came up in a night. It perished in a night. How can you be angry about that? You have pity on the plant. Verse 11, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? Should I not pity Nineveh, people who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, would be the people that were unable to make moral judgments necessarily because of their age, traditionally thought that these would be people that, or anyone under seven years old. What God is saying here is, what about the innocent children, Jonah? You want me to punish them too? Jonah's anger had blinded him to what he was really saying. What him asking God to do and bringing judgment would really mean. God asked him, if you, if you can pity something that you had no hand in bringing about, is it not right for me to have pity and compassion for those whom I have created? Because to Jonah, Nineveh is just a city of evil people deserving judgment. But to God, to God, it would be the destruction and eternal damnation of people he created in his image. What's your perspective of the people around you? Are they just evil people that deserve judgment? Or are they they image bearers of Christ, whether they realize it or not, created in the image of God? And the Lord desires their heart. This book ends with three words and much livestock, and I don't know how to pull a whole lot of meat and application out of that phrase. (laughs) It's really like, end with a bang on this awesome chapter. But there's an interesting fact. The only other book in the Bible to end with a question is the book of Nahum. Jonah ends his book here essentially with the Lord asking, shouldn't I be merciful? He's asking this about a repentant Nineveh. And in Nahum, it ends with God essentially asking, shouldn't I deal with their sin? Because it was an idolatrous Nineveh. They had forsaken their repentance. They had gone back to worshiping idols. They were living in their evil ways again. And so he asks now, honoring their repentance, shouldn't I be merciful? And when they're living in sin, shouldn't I deal with it? It's an interesting observation. The answer to both questions is absolutely yes. Shouldn't he be, we want his mercy. Yes, absolutely. He should be merciful. He's been merciful toward us. Yes, he should be merciful towards others. And yes, he should deal with our sin. Praise God, he has dealt with our sin on the cross so And praise God that he will deal with sin in its entirety one day. No more. No more. And so we come to the end of the book of Jonah. And this last question that God asks him, shouldn't I be merciful? That was the whole point of everything that God had done for Jonah up until now and asking the questions, and preparing the fish, and preparing the plant, and preparing the worm, and preparing the wind, was all to prepare Jonah. So that way he could be without excuse when God revealed his heart to him. This is why I did this, Jonah. I did this to show you my compassionate and merciful heart towards you, and also, therefore, towards all sinful and wicked men. And thus, we have the third branch of God's message for all mankind. The sinfulness and wickedness of man only makes the compassionate heart of God that much more glorious, doesn't it? (laughs) And it it leaves us that much more in awe of who he is and all that he's done for us. Just because the book ends kind of abruptly doesn't mean that Jonah's story ended there. He had to have eventually come back to the Northern Kingdom, full of conviction, I'm hoping. And he writes this book, and as he writes this book, I'm sure the Lord's is just ministering through his heart. We'll close Matthew eight, <clears throat> verse thirty-five. You guys know these verses. I'm sorry, verse uh, chapter nine, verse thirty-five. Says then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Into his harvest. I'll close with a quote from Spurgeon about this whole Jonah story. He writes Suppose suppose that the problem had been given to us to solve. How shall this city be moved to repentance? How shall its vice be forsaken in the God of Israel, worshiped by all its inhabitants from the highest to the lowest? If we had not been paralyzed with despair, which is the most probable, we should nevertheless have sat down carefully to consider our plans. We should have parceled it out into missionary districts. We should have needed at least several hundreds, if not thousands, of able ministers. At once, expenses would have to be incurred, and we should have considered ourselves bound to contemplate the building of innumerable structures in which the word of God might be preached. Our machinery would necessarily become cumbrous. We should find that we, unless we had the full resources of an empire, could not even begin the work. But what saith the Lord concerning this? Putting aside the judgments of reason and all the plans and schemes which flesh and blood so naturally do follow, he raises up one man. By a single providence, he qualifies that one man for his mission. The Lord has qualified you for the mission that he has for you. The harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. Let's be part of the few. Amen. That's all Sam. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you desire to use us as a means of sharing your word and your love into the world around us. We are so undeserving. And yet we stand firm in the grace and mercy that you bestow. We know that you are slow to anger. We desire that for our own hearts. We know that you are abundant in loving kindness and we know that you relent from doing harm. It does, you you get no pleasure from bringing judgment to the world. But we know that judgment is coming. And so I pray that our focus would be eternal, Lord. That we would not get entangled in the snares of this world and the arguments and the anger Father, that anger would lead us to, to cry out to you. That you would give us your compassionate heart towards sinful man, Lord, because we've been on the receiving end of your mercy. Would we extend that mercy unto others? And that would you use us as you have qualified us by your spirit, not through anything that we're able to bring in our own strength, but by your spirit alone qualify us to go out with boldness and courage, steadfastness in the mission that you have set before us. This message is for all mankind. Salvation is of the Lord and of the Lord alone. We proclaim that tonight and we proclaim that in our lives everywhere we go, Lord. Let that be the message that our lives declare. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.